0: Welcome, everyone, to our interview special. We're very excited about this one. Ooh, yeah. Uh, I'm here with
1: Ryan Eliopoulos, what a Ben fun.
0: Magnet, yeah. and myself.
1: Sparky Sparks couldn't be here today,
0: unfortunately. I, I was about to introduce him, but I was like, he's not here. Oh, sorry. So I, I to, the joke. So I had to like introduce <laughs> yeah. someone else. So he I was is, like, myself. Like, he is lost
2: in the ether. He is on yeah. the Grand Quest. Yeah, he's well, lost. I mean,
0: truthfully,
1: it was just very difficult to yeah.
0: have two people on the phone. Yeah. So we had a phone interview with the legendary voice director, Andrea Romano.
1: Yeah, the... the, the person who kind of shaped our our childhood if like when we really think about it yeah. like how much yeah. of the shows we grew up she directed.
2: Yeah. But all that's the insane. All the shows that I mean when we get into this interview when people listen to this interview all the shows she talks about we have all watched. I I, so, for,
1: I forgot some of them too. I'm like dude, she was literally everywhere. Yeah, That's crazy.
2: Yeah, she made all of our I and mean, especially for us 90s kids, she made our childhoods. Yeah. She, she was the nineties <laughs> I said
0: this she like defined our geekdom, yeah mm-hmm. um so we liked the interview so much, we let it go on a little bit longer than we had anticipated, so which decided, is a good thing which is, which no, a really yeah. good thing. I, We're very I, happy about it, so we decided to put it out as its own thing because we wanted you all to see it to see it uh to see it well, listen to, to, to hear it. it, hear it to believe it on its own. Uh, without the, the bothersome rest of the episode. Yeah who, yeah, who needs that shit? Who needs all that crap? That's why you don't
2: have, if you just came here straight for Andrea Romano, you don't have to like fast forward 15 minutes. You're f- skipping 15 seconds
1: right now. Yeah. Right. You're skipping 15 seconds right now. You're skipping 15 seconds right now. Stop right.
0: skipping 15 seconds because we're going to start it now. We're excited to be joined today by Andrea Romano. Uh, thank you very much for doing this. Oh, it's
3: my pleasure entirely. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course, of course. Uh, we,
3: great, we're we we great. a great admirer of your work. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So we wanted to get... I, st- oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. No, no. I was going to say, I, I, I loved my work. I, I loved my job. I loved my career. And so it makes me very happy when other people respond to it, saying that they enjoyed my career as well. So thank you for that.
0: Oh, that's good, that's good to hear. Thank
3: you. Uh, so how did you
0: get started
3: uh, in the industry? Uh, I uh, I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a part of the entertainment industry. I did not know exactly in what capacity. I started by pursuing acting, and so I went to school in New York, um, upstate New York at the State University uh, at Fredonia, which is 60 miles southwest of Buffalo, which probably explains to you why I live in much warmer climates now. Mm -hmm. 60 miles southwest of Buffalo, the year I graduated, 1977, it was 40 below zero with the wind chill factor for three weeks running. And so I'm very happy to live in beautiful Southern California where we we were just chatting about how it's 80 degrees here today. (laughs) (laughs) But I I studied acting there. It was a terrific uh, state school for uh, a wonderful theater program. And then I went to Rutgers in New Jersey and continued studying acting. And uh, then went into Manhattan and tried my hand at it. And then... I always felt this draw toward Los Angeles. I always wanted to be here and found out not too terribly many years ago that I was actually conceived in Santa Monica, so I believe there actually was some basic root connection for me to come to los angeles it was, it and it truly wasn 't that 's right yeah. and it really truly wasn 't until I moved here, and that would be one thousand nine hundred and seventy nine that I began any kind of actual professional career and how that happened was. A, a roommate friend of mine from Fredonia called me, he was living in Los Angeles, and he said that there was a voiceover agency that needed a temporary assistant for the voice department uh, just for a couple of weeks and i went in and interviewed for the job and they hired me for a temporary job and to make a very long story short the girl who uh, whose job i was temping for decided not to come back within my stay there within 6 months they franchised me so for a very short period of time i was the youngest agent in hollywood Ooh. and uh, i became a voice agent and was an agent at this large agency Abrams Blue for about Two or three years. Then I was headhunted for a smaller agency um, to start their voice department, and that was great fun. And then I went to, um, then I got a phone call from my dear friend Ginny McSween, who at the time was the casting director at Hanna Barbera, and I had been doing business with her as an agent, and she called me and said uh, that she was going to move on to voice directing. And would I like to come and interview for the job of casting director at Hanna Barbera? And this was just like a dream come true, you guys. This was the joke that I make is when she called me and asked me that, my phone was left spinning in the air in typical animation style as I like jumped <laughs> in my car and blasted over to Hanna Barbera to be the first one to interview for that job because I didn't want anybody else to get it. And um, and then I was a casting director at Hanna Barbera from, let's see, '84 through '89, and uh, started directing, uh, which is a very common um, uh, order of things. A lot of us who direct voices ultimately start as actors, become agents. Then become casting directors and then become voice directors. And that's exactly what my path was. And so, uh, they asked me at Disney. Disney TV was just forming. And they asked me if I would come and direct DuckTales for them, which Woo-hoo! was absolutely Ooh. joy. Exactly. Thank you for that. You can't say <laughs> DuckTales without saying, I can't. I, I got to do something. You're not supposed to. It's obligatory. Absolutely. And, uh, so I did, gosh probably a hundred episodes or so of that show. And then a bunch of my pals from Hanna Barbera broke off and formed Warner Brothers T V animation and that's when I had to become totally freelance, which was a huge risk and really scary, but ultimately a really good choice.
1: Yeah,
0: and
3: like um it it did. It did. It kind of worked out. And uh, so I went over to direct Steven Spielberg presents Tiny Toons oh, yeah. and then that one uh, and then Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain and Batman the Animated Series and on and on and on. And, and and then you know we can talk more about what went on but that's essentially to answer your question from a very long time ago oh, that's cool. how I got started in the industry.
0: Oh, that's super interesting. That's super fascinating. Yeah. So you were so you were freelance and that's how you got involved with the like DC essentially.
3: Correct, correct. Oh, very cool. Absolutely, yep. Yep. I had worked with Bruce Tim. It was either Animaniacs or Tiny Toons. I think it was Tiny Toons. He was a storyboard artist, and Warner Brothers uh, wanted to expand their rapidly growing empire of animation, a TV animation. And they knew that Bruce was a Batman fan an action hero, hero fan and a comic book fan. And they asked him if he wanted to make a Batman series. And of course he jumped at that opportunity. And really, I think I lucked out because he really didn't know any other voice directors or casting directors. And so he came to me and said, do you want to do this show called Batman, the animated series? And I thought, heck yeah. (laughs) I, I was very lucky that it was Bruce Tim because he's such an encyclopedia of the DC universe. So when we would be casting, you know, for women my age, we did not read action comic books as young girls. We might have read romance comic books or Archie and Jughead or those kinds of, of comic books, but we really, really didn't read the Batman, you know, Superman, DC, Marvel universe of comic books. And so even like Harvey. Two Face, I didn't really know who that was or what the origin story was of Two Face. And so Bruce Tim was just like brilliant at being able to break down the essence of how the character became to be and what he thought the voice should sound like. What was really interesting about that particular series was um, the only real uh, theatrical production, if you will, of Batman. So something that was. Um, a production uh, rather than a comic book or a graphic novel. The only thing that was done before that was the Adam West um, live-action series. And that was, as we all know, very cartoony and very broad and really silly and wonderful. I loved it. But Bruce wanted to make a very different type of animated series. He wanted it to be The Dark Knight. And that was a really fun challenge for me. And most of my experience directing had been for much more cartoony, uh, light uh, comic type, uh, comic as in comedy type series. So, I, if you watch the first episodes of Batman the animated series, and then watch some of the later episodes, and Justice League, again as we moved on with the other action series, they become much, um, not necessarily darker, but more theatrical in style. They're not as broad. More They're not, not as sure. cartoony. The series evolved, as almost all series do. They Everybody gets their feet under them. The actors get more confident. They understand the characters better. I understand the characters better. We all work better as an ensemble. And then we created this... Who would ever imagine what we created back in, I guess, around 91 is when we started with Batman, the animated series, wow. and then all of those wonderful DC properties that I I had the joy to work on from... Batman Beyond, and Superman, and Justice League, and Justice League Unlimited, and I think I did as many as 23 of the direct-to-video movies, and it was, I mean, really, really, and and some of those movies, they gave me the okay to use Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill and all the wonderful actors I had found, and in some of them they said, nope, we're going to use a different artistic style, we want new voices, so I think I've probably cast Batman gosh, close to 20 times. And it was really hard the first time. And so it just became harder and harder and harder. The good thing was I always had a backup list. So when we cast Kevin Conroy, I had a backup list of about five other guys that were really, really good that we had auditioned. Yeah. So I always kept a, a copy of those lists and, and kind of reached out to a lot of those actors that I wanted to work with and that weren't available for certain things. Uh, for example, and I wouldn't it be great if I could remember the name of this piece, but one of the last movies I directed for Warner Brothers, I had been trying for years to get um, Michael C. Hall to come in and play. And finally... He did, and he was on my list for like ten years. But he was so busy doing Dexter and a bunch of other shows that I just couldn't get him.
0: Oh, that's right. And he so did, I was, he, he did Batman. God, he did Justice League, Gods and Monsters, right?
3: Gods and Monsters, that's it, Gods oh, and Monsters. Oh, yeah, that's great, yeah. And, and so uh, I was very lucky that because I had kept these lists of these actors that I wanted to work with um, and had reached out to many of them and they just either weren't available or the timing wasn't right or their wife was having a baby or they were having a baby, whatever, it just wasn't the right time. And, and then throughout the, the period of my career, I managed to get a tremendous number of them to come in and play. That's great.
1: Yeah, you you. It's really cool to think that, like, when when you started on Batman, you, you you were coming from you know more a comedic background, and it's 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 really awesome to think that like you kind of you casted you know everyone's Batman. You know everyone has like a Michael Keaton Batman or a Christian Bale, but for right. most most of the '90s kids. Kevin Conroy is our Batman, and it's so funny to say. Oh, it could have been a bunch of other people, and we could be having a different conversation about a different actor. But like you, <laughs> you like you created this thing, and it's like it's it's so cool. It's so cool to see uh, the journey that you went.
3: on. Thank you so much. That's so nice of you to say. It's it, it's really weird, and you're right. We could have been having a whole different conversation. However, it's almost like the universe was meant to give us Kevin Conroy as yeah. the voice of Batman. So Who, God, by the way, I'm having saying. lunch that's with great. in about. In about two hours I'm on my way to his house to go have lunch today. So oh, that's exciting. Um, I'm going over the to the Bat Cave lunch um and he's my dear 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 friend but you know you've probably heard me tell this story before and I'll 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 make it a little short so that it's not tremendously long but I did a massive search as you can imagine for the voice of Batman because that's such an iconic character and so important and you know lots of people had their their own in their own heads their idea of what Batman should sound like even the dark Batman what he should sound like and I heard well over 500 auditions for that voice and then uh called back over 100 actors. <clears throat> Pardon me. And, and the reason I say I called them back is we knew we were going to make a bunch of episodes. I think we had an initial order of 65 episodes. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of cartoons to make. And first of all, you want to make sure that not only is it the right actor, but it's somebody that you want to spend that much time with. You know what I mean? We were going to be working shoulder to shoulder for years to make that many cartoons. So you want to make sure that the actor... Listens to the director, pardon me, and takes Direction and understands in very few words what kind of adjustments I want them to make, and so you may have an actor with a terrific voice who sends in a terrific audition and then you get him in the callback, and all they can do is that performance that they gave you in that initial audition. they cannot alter it that's all they've got and that's why you do callbacks you do callbacks to see how um, agreeable is this actor to changes, how much versatility within that voice is there and if you remember on those early episodes in the first season or two of batman we had a different voice a slightly different voice for bruce wayne than we did for batman as we went on we decided that they should kind of meld and become kind of the same voice so we also needed to make sure that the actors could make a distinct difference between bruce wayne and batman and yet still make it sound like to the audience that that was the same man. You didn't want it to sound like two distinctly different people. It needed to sound like the same guy. And so we did, um, gosh, days and days and days of callbacks, Bruce, Tim, and I. And we got down to about four or five actors that we we thought, okay, they could do it. This guy could do it. This guy could do it. And then, again, my dear friend Anthony Barneo, who was a on-camera casting director by this time, and I said to him, do you know any on-camera actors that I should listen to, that I should consider for Batman? He said, you know what, there's this guy, Kevin Conroy, and he's got a lot of soap opera work, and he's got a lot of, he's a Juilliard-trained actor, and he's blah, blah, blah." and so I called him in during the callback process, so this was just sort of a last-minute audition, And he walked in the door and opened his mouth and did his audition. And Bruce Tim and I looked at each other and had one of those absolute eureka moments when we just thought, this is it. This guy so understands what we're looking for. And it helped, of course, that he was a Juilliard-trained actor. But he's told me over the years that he looked at Batman and Bruce Wayne as the Hamlet story. You know, the guy who's... Father Hamlet's father's, uh, you know, father, sorry, mother. Uh, yeah, no, father's murdered. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Wayne's parents are murdered. There's a whole vengeance thing going on, and I thought that was a wonderful way for a theatrical actor to look at how to approach Batman and Bruce Wayne. And you know, here we are, how many years later? For goodness sakes! <laughs> and um, and you know, when I prep a script, when I am doing any kind of Batman project. I hear the voices in my head, and it's always Kevin's voice. Even though I've had marvelous other actors voice Batman for me, yeah, I, it's when it, always when I Kevin's read voice. When
1: comics, uh, sometimes I'm like, man, I'm, I, I read it in Kevin Conroy's voice. I'm like, does this work? And it does work a lot of the time. No. Yeah, I do. The same. <laughs> now, for
2: me, every time I read a Joker <laughs> book, it is always Mark Hamill. Actually, Andrea, I have of a course. question. How did you yeah. know that Mark
3: Hamill was going to be the definitive voice
2: of the Joker?
3: I didn't. Oh. Um, I had initially cast Tim Curry, And I think I know. I think Bruce Tim and I are the only people that have uh, the an existing. um, It would be, I believe, a a VCR um, of tim curry as the joker and it's not a fully mixed version (laughs) it's not mixed it has no sound effects no music it wasn't you know adr yet but um we had gotten it to the point when it was a completely animated episode with tim's voice and i liked tim's performance very much and uh, with if i had not been asked by a new producer that came onto the show to look for other jokers because he did not care for Tim's performance. And, you know, these are all subjective things. Everybody, you know, you show somebody a certain color of blue, uh, you show ten people, eight of them are going to like it, two of them are going to go, I really don't like that color at all. And this was a producer who just didn't like Tim's version of the Joker. So I brought Tim back many times to try to save him the job because I hate replacing actors. Sure. I will do as much work as possible to, keep, to save the actors the job. And so we brought uh, him back and, and I just could not convince the producer that Tim was the guy. And so at that time, I had brought Mark in to do a guest role. And he had said to me after the session, Andrea, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. This is so much fun, but I really want to be a part of the Batman series. And I, it, you don't have to hit me over the head. I get it. I understand what you want, What that means. That means you want a recurring or a you know, regular role on the series. And so it happened almost at the same time that I had been given this directive to recast the Joker. Now, the trick of it was he not only had to come up with a great voice for the Joker, but because we had several episodes already in production with Tim's voice, March had to come in and ADR which means he had to do a voice replacement for an already animated episode, meaning he had to match Tim Curry's mouth flaps, but make it his own character, make it his own voice. And I believe that episode was Christmas with the Joker. I think that's the first one that we did where he replaced Tim Curry. So he had to that's not only the do that, but he had to sing. Because I, uh, I think he sings, you know, Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, Robin yeah. Laid Egg. I think that's on there too. So yeah. he had to, had to, you know, match the timing and sing and everything. And, and then as, you know, time went on, and Mark really let loose with the Joker voice and, and started adding all of his superior knowledge, far superior to mine as far as knowledge of who the Joker was and how he fit into this universe and every comic book that he ever appeared in, and so much information. And Mark really began to inform that character. After maybe a, a season of Batman, I knew this was going to be something that. I knew at that point, after a season, that Kevin Conroy had made his mark as Batman, that um, Mark Hamill had made his mark as the Joker, and that it was going to be hard for people who were being introduced to Batman to, to hear anybody else's voice, just to hear any other person as those characters, because they were just crazy good. Just crazy good.
0: Was this after uh, Mark Hamill appeared as the trickster on The Flash?
3: No. Oh. Nope, this is the four.
1: So, man, you you possibly re- revitalize his career. You're the reason we have The Last Jedi. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh,
3: <laughs> i I thank you for that. I, I'd like to think so. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'd like to think that's true. I, you know, he he credits me with that and thanks me for that. How stupid would I have been to not take advantage of this remarkable actor? And, you know, you think about the other actors that were involved with Star Wars way back when and how so many of their careers went, you know, global and huge and massive. And and Marx did not take off on the same level. And I remember... Gosh, about two years ago, I guess, I reached out to Mark and needed him for something for the Joker. I think it was a video, um, virtual reality project. And I reached out to him, because we're friends, by email. And I said, first of all, where in the world are you? And are, can you be available within this time frame, blah, blah, blah. And he emails me back saying, I'm in L- London shooting this, you know, <laughs> <laughs> next, next episode of, uh, you know, Star Wars and having the time of my life and i thought it's his turn it's absolutely his turn to get the the accolades he deserves to to be the big star of star wars at this point because it absolutely just was his turn and doesn't he look fantastic and doesn't oh, that beard amazing. suit him and so and too. it just as as a as a friend of mine and as an actor and, and as all things deserve justice, it was about time for that to happen for him. And uh it just makes me really happy that, that this was is his time and he's, you know, all over the world promoting and he's he deserves it. And yet he's still doing the Joker and he didn't lose his love for that and he didn't go nah I'm above that now. I'm I'm a big a big movie star again and he's not that way at all. He's he's a fan as well as you know, a major contributor to all things Batman.
0: Did you see in Justice League Action he portrayed three char- uh, four characters? Isn't that great? He was Isn't the trickster, the Joker himself,
3: and Swamp Thing. Isn't that cool? He's he's a really versatile actor, and he and he loves to play, and he loves a challenge, and he and he. Well, he just jumps in with both feet and, uh, you know, everything. He, he's willing to, to take a shot at so many things and, and that just pleases me. I love it when actors are not afraid to to take on that kind of challenge. And he, um, you know, he just loves this stuff and so that's great. That's just great.
0: So I remember once you were talking about a wish list of actors, uh, I think I saw this, I think I first saw you mention this in the uh, behind the scenes for The Dark Knight Returns uh, uh-huh. when you cast Peter Weller. Uh, was uh-huh. there anyone on your wish list that you didn't get to uh, get to cast a
3: lot a lot unfortunately Christopher Lee I had always wanted to work Ooh, with oh. I would have thought I thought he would have made the most wonderful way ghoul oh and my, I did offer so right. it to him oh, sounds, don't you think and good. I did offer it to him but he was already quite on in years he was living in London I had talked to a couple of people who had worked with him not too much before that and they had said he's um he's yeah, having it, it will take you a lot of time to get what you want and and i was prepared to do that anyhow he just didn't accept the offer and um but i think he would have been fabulous if i had you know reached out to him maybe very very early on when we first had him appear. that might have worked however i love david warner as rachel ghoul i oh, thought yeah. he was killer good so that 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 kind of played out just fine um and i know this is so silly and i've said this before in interviews and and it's really not a a, a action hero type of casting but i always wanted to work with alex trebek i love (laughs) alex trebek huge fan of jeopardy and i was just watching um i've been binge watching comedians in cars uh, getting coffee uh, the Jerry Seinfeld uh, wonderful series and he the interview was with um, Carl Weiner and Mel Brooks and they were at home because once a week they get together and watch Jeopardy and I just thought <laughs> see I'm not the only person who's a huge Jeopardy fan and I've met Alex a couple of times and I've been very fortunate to be at several Emmy events when he was there and met him and said you know I'd love to have you come and play and he's Eyes lit up, and he's like, "Yes, I, I can do many types of voices." <laughs> Something for you and I did. I thought I had something for him. Actually, on Voltron, legendary legendary defender for um, uh, DreamWorks, but I don't do the casting on that show. And they had already cast somebody else in a, in the role. Um, but uh, that that was kind of a sad thing. And and there were many other people that I wanted to work with, like a list that just goes on and on. And every time a new series comes up, and you you look and you watch and you see, you know, Michelle Dockery from. Um, Downton Abbey or whomever, and you really get to know their work more than just one series, and you go, gosh, I would have loved to have worked with that actor. And there's a lot of actors that I worked with in the past that I would have loved to have worked with again, like um, Tom Sizemore. I loved Tom Sizemore. He was fantastic to work with. Like, um eric roberts i adored him i would love to have worked with him again and uh you know it just there there weren't enough there wasn't enough time to get all these people back in you know carl lumley a lot of the regulars that i worked with on series i would love to have gotten into other different types of projects with them and there just wasn't always time and you know whether it's michael rosenbaum or you know scott menville or any of the teen titans or any of these people i you know nathan fillion and all these wonderful actors i'd I'd love to work with them all again at some point, and and then I, I retired. <laughs> uh, I, gotta, I gotta
1: say, uh, Dark Knight Returns, like Peter Weller, like I love RoboCop, and that, and I was worried about that movie just because like adapting like that material like, is is tough, Oof. and I think doing it in two parts was really smart, and I think it's really so well do done, I. and I love the casting, and I think Peter Weller's is. Thank really, you really
3: so much. Yeah. I, I, I tell you, I was nervous too about it, and I thought breaking it into two parts was genius, and I wish I could take any credit for any of this stuff, it had nothing to do with me, but what was, what's always intimidating about directing someone like Peter Weller is, Peter Weller is a director, as well as a brilliant actor, he's a director, and a really good director, and it's intimidating directing a director. I I directed Steven Spielberg, I directed John Landis, I directed a bunch of directors. And it's always intimidating because you know they have ideas in their mind of how to get a performance out of an actor. I've been very lucky that I've I've succeeded at doing it without falling into a flop sweat myself and and being able to get through it with them. Um, But Peter was so wonderfully challenging because he would challenge some things. And he would question me and we would debate and some of those debates I won and some of those doba- debates he won. And it was really fun for Bruce Tim and Peter and I to collectively work through the performance of that role. And I wish I could take credit for thinking of Peter Weller for that, but that was absolutely Bruce Timm's idea. I, I I think Peter agreed to do it not only because he was familiar with the material and I, th- I believe a friend of uh, Frank Miller's, I believe, and... Um, and available and and I think he also knew uh, through his agent of my reputation and that it was going to be a good experience he wasn 't going to be asked to be there for a ridiculous number of hours beyond what was absolutely necessary and and I think he really liked the process and he did a bunch of appearances with us after the fact I think he did a a, Paley, a couple of Paley Center events and helped promote the piece and and he was terrific, and I, I think really good casting, really good. And that that piece came out great. And that was hard. That was a really hard piece, and I was worried how the fans would respond. And um, it's kind of like the Killing Joke, which I did not work on. I thought that's that's a scary piece to attempt because the fans have really strong feelings toward that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was kind of grateful that I didn't work on that because I I thought that's a, a challenge that I don't know that we could actually you know overcome that challenge.
2: Yeah. In your in your expansive career, what would you say was the most
3: challenging project you've ever done? You know, they are all challenging. Probably oddly enough, the very first one, which would be DuckTales. And the reason that Ooh-hoo. was so challenging is uh, <laughs> just like you
2: said earlier, every
3: you. Time someone says DuckTales, you have to say Ooh-hoo. you You Um it it Because I I did not know how good I was going to be at it. And this was during a time when it was standard practice to do ensemble records, which meant all the actors were in the room at the same time. And, you know, at the beginning of my career, controlling that many different energies of the talent and the crew and the whole thing was a learning curve for me because I had no experience at it yet. And so I had to put the whole thing together and figure out, you know, and so I'd walk in kind of nervous sometimes. And by the end of the four hour session, I was so energized and happily, you know, jazzed and really buzzing from the sessions. But then the next session I would go into, I would start with that bit of trepidation going, do i know how to do this thing and and so there's that one just just for the point that it was the first and then one that was really really tricky was called Rescue Rangers which oh, is Chip yeah. right? and Dale right and why show
2: growing up oh my goodness.
3: it was really cool wasn't it I, and why that was such a challenge you guys was think about what year this is we're talking about late 80s who were making that series so tech technology had not really had certainly not gotten to the point where we are today and Chip and Dale and Zipper, the three characters, were all sped voices. Mm-hmm. So what oh, we would do with that show was we would rehearse the entire cast and then record all the regular voices, all the voices who were not sped, and then keep Tress McNeil and Corey Burton in the room, let everybody else go home, slow the tape down 50%. And the actors would do their scenes like this. (laughs) They would act in slow motion. And then we would do the entire show that way. And then we would bring the tape back up to speed. Now, we're talking reel to reel. Bring the tape back up to speed. Listen back to the performance. Make sure it doesn't sound like the actors are (laughs) acting like that. Make sure there's clarity. And make notes of anything that we have to go back and fix for that reason. Then go back, slow the tape down 50%, re record the lines that we had problems with, listen back to those at regular speed, and then we'd be done. So that was a real challenge. Now we have the ability to just pitch and speed, you know, with a computer and all of that, so the actor can act in the scene with the other actors, and we don't have, as long as they don't overlap. We can just treat those voices and make it work, but back then it was really a challenge because we hadn't reached this kind of technological, you know, expertise that we have now.
1: Man, like limitations, like like you had limitations, but that created like opportunities, and the way you did it sounds crazy. But that show was awesome, and it worked. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. just like when you like, think of movies that have like bi- billion-dollar budgets and then small movies with small budgets, like they have to work with what they have. And you, right. guys, you guys did it, and that's, that's really fascinating to hear. Like I didn't know you watched you watched the tape at half speed, and like you record it. That's super interesting.
3: Isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? And I, I like to tell those stories and let people know that because it wasn't just a breeze. Every, it took quite a bit of, you know, real um, – Patience, you know, patience, and and kind of figuring it out. And then one other, you know, because when you ask that question about which ones presented the challenges for me, um, I was determined when Hanna-Barbera, way back when, decided to make new episodes of The Jetsons, 41 new episodes, 26 years after the original series was made, I wanted to try to get the original actors. I thought, what the heck, let's at least give it a shot. And tracking them down, finding them all, getting them all to agree that they wanted to do this, and recording them, that was really a challenge. And one of the things I am most proud of not the least of which was getting, finding George O'Hanlon, the voice of George Jetson, getting him in to record. Now, George had had a stroke about eight years prior to our going back into production for this and was, for the most part, blind. Mm-hmm. And so I spoke with his wife and said, do you think he would want to do this thing. And she said, let me talk to him over t- tonight and I'll call you tomorrow. And she called me the next day and said, I haven't seen him this excited In years. And so what we did, you guys, was, this was back in the day when there weren't nearly as many shows being produced at the same time. And so we would have scripts a week in advance. And we would send them off via, you know, messenger. So somebody would get in their car and drive a script over to Nancy O'Hanlon's house and George O'Hanlon's house. And Nancy would read the script to George, all the stage direction, all the dialogue, into a cassette recorder. And then the day of the recording session, she would drive him in, put the cassette in the car, they would listen again to the show so that George was really familiar with the show, and then we would put George in the um, recording studio with Gordon Hunt, the voice director, I would sit in the booth to monitor, and Gordon would feed George his lines. And George would echo them back. And that's how we got him to record the voice of George Justin. And then that would be edited into the scenes with the other actors that we had recorded in a separate scene. They would pretty much all be done on the same day. So they would kind of get to see each other in passing. I would be releasing all the other actors and George would be just arriving. So they'd all get to see each other. Which was just joyous to see these actors see each other after all these years. And all of the voices in that series... We're sped up a little bit. Because think about what the vocal cords do. Just like other parts of our bodies, as we get older, gravity takes hold and our voices get deeper. So to make those actors sound like they did 26 years earlier, we had to speed them a little bit to raise the pitch to make them sound like they did in the original series.
0: That's really cool.
3: Yeah, it was really fun, really fun. And I was very proud of having found, all and I'm convinced you guys that we extended the lives of all those actors because they had something to do every week. Mm-hmm. They had a show. They were on a show. They had a reason to get up and shower and dress and go out and see their friends and do the show. And I, I'm, I'm very proud of having found them all, tracked them down, and recorded them all on that series.
1: And and you know what? You, you didn't have to do that, and it would have been probably like easier to just cast new people. But like because you did that, man, like- like, that's, that's really special to, like, to the people Thank who, you. To, who watch it, to the people who are involved with it. Like, like when you put, like, your own care into it, like you do with your work, like, it, everyone benefits. Yep.
3: It's yep. Really it, great it, I see. think it, it works for everybody. Thank you for that. Thank you.
0: I love seeing original voice voice actors come back. Like, the original O was in the new Thundercats show. Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Always yeah. love to see that. It's
3: fun, isn't it? Yeah. it's really cool when you get those people to come in it's, it's, it's kind of fun stunt casting you know as far as bringing in someone from an original series to come in on the reboot and um, and you want you want that kind of you know uh, ability to promote the show with that little teaser you know uh, and I think it makes those actors feel good too and I'm sure they, they, when they watch a reboot they're like Oh, I should be on that show yeah. so you bring yeah. them in for a guest and then they kind of get that satisfaction that makes me happy
0: So I don't know if you're on social media too much, but a little bit ago there was a hashtag, JL Reunion, where Uh a bunch of the actors from Justice League and Justice League Unlimited wanted to be like, hey, Warner Brothers, make a a movie with us again. Right. So I was wondering, if that were to happen, would you come back to
3: work with that cast? (laughs) We did a Comic-Con in Denver Within the last year, actually, it was in July of this past year. And it was a Justice League panel, and we did a a table read for the audience and uh, a a large chunk of the cast were there and the fans as they had before via social media and I'm not on social media at all but I'm certainly aware of it and people tell me what's going on and the fans were just like please please make more make more they they went nuts over the the reunion that we did there and I have to give Susan Eisenberg credit she's really the one who spearheads the voice of Wonder Woman she's the one that spearheads all of these reunions which make me really happy and she's awesome Mm. and and um, the, one of the questions that was asked of us on the panel was, how, you know, how can we get a Justice League reunion to happen as a series? And I said, you know, use social media to let Warner Brothers know that you want this to happen. Well, apparently, they have gone nuts and really are <laughs> trying to get Warner Brothers to do it. I loved that series. I loved the actors on it. It was incredibly hard work because you look at some of the episodes of, say, Justice League Unlimited, and there are dozens and dozens of speaking roles in that. So casting all by itself was huge on those shows. And just getting all those actors scheduled and recorded, it was massive, but joyous because they were all so good. Um, and so uh, a very long way around that question is, yes, I would be tempted to come back. It would have to be with, well, I am retired now. Mm-hmm. That being said, I have done a couple of jobs here and there where people have called me up and said, we need you. Can you come do this? And sure, it's a one day gig and I can come and do that really fast. The reason I retired, you guys, you may or may not know, is um, in July, as a matter of fact, uh, very shortly after that Denver Comic-Con I just mentioned, I uh, developed this condition that's very rare known as optic neuropathy oh. and to make a very long story short. It, within three days, it blinded my left eye, oh. and there's no cure for it. They have no idea what causes it approximately 8,000 people a year in this country get that condition. There are 330 million people uh, living in the United States. 330 million people. 8,000 a year get this condition. I have better odds of winning the lottery than getting this condition. And there's no cure cure for it. And the... The thing about only being able to see out of one eye is a lot of my work uh, is involved in the post-production process when we look at the footage with the voices and um, observe Observe whether or not the, the, the voices match what's going on on screen. And sometimes characters are yelling on, you know, in the voice vocal track, but they're standing right next to the other actor, the other character, rather. So that's wrong. You have to ADR that. That means I have to be able to read the tiny time code on the screen. I've got to be able to see the mouth flaps so that when I direct the actor, I can be sure it fits. And perceiving and interpreting all visual information through one eye is hard. It's very stressful and it it puts a lot of pressure on my head and so I was at the time doing four series and I would find at the end of the day, my head was killing me and so I decided that I, I needed to retire. The other factor was, as I started seeing specialists about this eye condition, true specialists, guys at the UCLA Jules Stein Eye Center, who are the top-of-the-line guys in this field, 40 to 60% of the people who get this condition within three to five years have the second eye affected as well. Mm-hmm. So there's the potential that I could conceivably go blind. Now, don't be sad. Um, I, I, what I loved about that statistic was Doug Langdale, a producer I've worked with for years, um, he was the producer of uh, um, Puss in Boots. We did a lot of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shows together. Um, he said, Andrea... A 40% chance of this happening means there's a 60% chance that it's not going to happen. So that's the way I like to look at it. I have a better chance of it not happening than happening. But that said, there's a lot of the world that I haven't seen yet and a lot of beautiful things that I want to go look at uh, just in case, God forbid, I do lose my vision. And so my husband and I just got back from a month in Asia Went to Thailand and Vietnam and Hong Kong and saw some of the most beautiful sites and the most unusual exotic locations. And we're on our way to Mardi Gras in a a week or so and to Nashville where I've never been. And so that's what I'm going to do the next several years is go see the world and go look at beautiful things and go to gorgeous museums and see classic art and do all that stuff. And then, so I'm not adverse when people come to me with various different things like the Justice League or um, there's a project that Rob Paulson and Kevin Conroy and I have talked about possibly doing that, that you know, would tempt me to come out of retirement. Um, I couldn't do a full recording schedule like I typically would do. And, you know, back in my early career, there was times when I was doing 11 projects simultaneously. I just plain don't have the energy for that anymore, but I I don't have the ability because of my visual problem. Mm -hmm. Now, you guys, if you were to walk around for 24 hours with an eye patch over one eye, you would see that you can actually function quite well in the world. It's just that because of the minutia of the work I do that involves a visual acuity, that's what I can't do for, set, for a series of four projects on. Um, but uh, Justice League is tempting. I was just offered a, a potential Teen Titans something, but I, I just couldn't work the money out. And you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying retirement, and, and the thing that I say to people when they ask me about it, and they're like, so what do you do every day? And And my somewhat glib but genuinely honest answer to that is Anything I want. (laughs) Whatever I want, I do because I'm retired. And so I'm enjoying that. I have to say that's a real pleasure. Everything from, you know, my typical day when I was working was getting up at four in the morning, prepping scripts and storyboards for recording in the recording studio from nine to one and two to six returning phone calls and emails from 6 to 8 o'clock at night, having dinner with my sweet husband, who I don't see all day long, and then falling asleep and doing the whole thing five days a week. Now... I get to go to the bank at 10.30 in the morning when there's not a line. (laughs) Going to the post office at 2.30 in the afternoon is a completely different experience than going during the lunch hour. And so I'm kind of liking that. There are some things that will tempt me to come out of retirement. It would have to be financially worthwhile, and it would have to be something that really plucks at my heartstrings and people that I truly, truly desire to work with again. So, so yes, I would come out of retirement for certain projects, but right now my concentration is on going out there in the world and seeing most, the most beautiful I, things that I can. I,
1: I, th- I think you
2: earned it. Yeah, I think so, yeah. too. Thanks for that. Yeah, I think so, Thank too. Thank you. I, I also completely Thank get you. where you're coming from. My father, he was in law enforcement for 25-plus years, and he retired mm-hmm. a few years ago. And he even asked him, he was like what do you do? And he his same answer, I, whatever I want. So he's I'm free. Been, exactly. I can do what I want. Yeah, yeah exactly.
3: <laughs> it's so weird that you have to become like – you know, older than sixty years old to do what you want. You yeah, know, do right? anything that you yeah. want. Now, please don't 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 think that I didn't spend the last thirty seven years of my working life doing absolute joyous work. I loved my career. I loved my job. I loved the actors. I loved the all the incredibly talented, creative people that made these cartoons come to life. I loved it. At the same time, retirement's probably the best-kept secret on the planet. It's really (laughs) awesome. It's really crazy good. It has this kind of, I don't know, I think people kind of look at it as, well, your life is kind of waning, and really it's just beginning. Because if you're smart, you saved some money, and you've had things that you've put off to retirement. Well, now that I've retired, a little bit, and I, was, I was only going to work three more years. I was going to retire in 2020 anyway. But now I have a little bit more time. And I think maybe it was just meant to happen this way. I think somebody had to say, Andrea, retire now. And that's what happened. My, my health said, retire now. And I'm in no discomfort. I'm in no pain, there's no... You know, the, the only thing about it is the potential for the other eye to be affected. But I'm going to pretend like that's not going to happen, and I'm going to continue to enjoy this glorious... um reputation that I have, which is remarkable. The fact that you guys wanted to discuss my career with me flatters me so much. And that, you know, here I'm retired probably six months in mm, September, October, November, December. No, only four months I'm retired. And I would say I do at least four or five podcasts a month, two or three interviews, teach a couple of you know online you know uh, uh, Michael Usland who's a major producer at Warner Brothers um, teaches a a one month seminar I believe it is at his alma mater uh, in Indiana and he reaches out to me and asks me if I would you know via Skype uh, or Zoom or whatever speak to his class for an hour sort of teach a class and and answer questions and so I'm I'm still quite active in this world of that was my career Um, but for the most part I do whatever the
1: heck I want. You go to you go to comic cons like that's where that's where we met you.
3: I do, yeah. and I do appear at comic cons. Mm-hmm. Hey, Batman's calling me on my other phone. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. oh no, so cool. I have to find out what lunch is. What we're having for lunch? <laughs> oh, Did you nice. have more questions for me, gentlemen? Uh, I
2: actually have one. Um, Please. One of your favorite series that you've ever. Directed was Avatar: The Last Airbender. That's my. Besides Batman and all the DC stuff, that's probably my favorite series that you ever did.
3: I love that show. Um, Love
2: that show. This may be asking like, hey, who's your favorite child? But do you have like maybe like three or five or however number of series that you say this is my favorite? That's my favorite. Do you have that?
3: Yes, and then you'll ask me tomorrow, and I'll give you five more. And then the next day you ask me a question again, I'll give you five of the other ones. They were all so special in their own ways but i can tell you that the ones that stick out in my mind as really really special are animaniacs Uh pinky and the brain Uh avatar the last airbender absolutely Uh, batman the animated series of course and i absolutely adored working on um puss in boots this uh, and they just dropped i think I don't even know how many episodes, but Netflix just released another batch of them this past weekend, I think. Um, Th- those are really, really special, and um, and and then again, if you ask me tomorrow, I would go, oh well, you know, Teen Titans, good lord, was so marvelous, and uh, SpongeBob, good lord, how lucky was I that I got to direct SpongeBob for five and a half years, and you know, they all were, you know, children of mine, and they all were special, and I loved them all, and even the hard ones were really special, and um, but those few that I mentioned up top were really, really, you know, if I had if someone said, tell me five series that you directed, those would probably be the ones that I would mention.
1: So uh, you also, you've done a couple of video games, and we're all video gamers here too, and uh, I just want to hear about your experience working with Blizzard, because you did StarCraft and you did Diablo 3, and uh, right. and I want to know, is there is it basically the same thing, like directing video games as to uh,
3: animated shows, and what's like the... the Ultimately... My responsibility is the same as far as getting the performance from the actor that that helps make the project, but because video games are not really uh, recorded as scenes, they're recorded as the um, as a as the game company needs the material. So they may be working on certain. And I don't think, scenes isn't really the correct way to describe it. It could be cut scenes. It could be action that's going to take place during gameplay. And so I don't get what's called a like a grid of lines of dialogue or impacts or death screams or panting or whatever it is that are really relatively out of context for me. But it's just a list because that's the day that they're going to get that actor from Japan. And we record a lot of people from overseas. The casting director at Blizzard, Andrea Toyas, is crazy good absolutely wonderful and she will search the world for talent and so we had actors that we were recording from Egypt from I mean crazy all over the world so we have the actor recording from Japan at you know it's 7 o'clock our time in Los Angeles and we have to record all of her lines at one time, because we only have her for however many hours, so they'll bring me this grid of lines. The producer will be either on the phone with me, ISDN, or in the room with me, and they have to explain to me the context of the line because I have nothing but a grid with a line on it, and I have no idea what the actor before said or the actor after said. So my my ultimate responsibility is the same: get a good performance from the actor for that line. But my prep is completely different. I, I do a tremendous amount of prep before I walk in to record a cartoon. I do zero prep for video games. I simply show up and they hand me a grid and tell me what they need. So that's the difference. But the, but the upshot is the same. I have to get a performance from the actor.
0: Cool. So we have one more question for you. Yep. Um So what is the best advice that you could give to a voice actor trying to get
3: into the industry? The very first thing is, Take acting classes. You may be able to do thousands. You may think you're able to do thousands <laughs> of voices. Um, nobody can do thousands of voices. But um, if you're not a good actor, then you, you may luck out and get a gig or two. If you're a really good actor, you're, you're going to have a much better potential for having a career doing voices. So that's the first thing. Take lots of acting classes and become a very good actor. Then start taking classes uh, specifically for voice acting in in across the board, it doesn't have to be just animation. Take I think actors should pursue every avenue of work that there is: hand modeling, everything, and so um, commercial voiceover acting, movie trailer voiceover acting, um, promo acting. Learn how to do. Tonight on ABC, there's this show, and then there's this show, and then there's back to this kind of show. So all that kind of stuff. Learn how to do all of that, including specifically animation voice acting. And take lots of classes, and not just private classes, but group classes, because you learn from everybody else. You hear somebody do a voice, and you go, oh, man, I never thought about placing my voice back there in the back of my throat the way they do. Or whatever you hear somebody else doing, and then you pick that up, and you sort of make that your own You kind of steal with love. You don't do exactly what that actor did, but you you find a way to make that yours. And then you put together a demo tape and then you get that out to agents, and then you get an agent, and then you start getting submitted and auditioning for various different specific projects, and then you start getting lots and lots of work, and then you thank me when you win your first <laughs> Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <sure. laughs> Thank you so thank you. much. We really appreciate oh. you doing this. this is, you're,
1: you're a my- wonderful person. Yeah.
3: Thank you so much, you guys. It was absolutely my pleasure. The best of luck to you both. Thank you, thank
0: you, thank you. Take care,
3: guys. Have you too. Bye. We hope
0: you enjoyed that as much as we did.
2: Man, that was great.
0: She's, can, she's so wonderful.
2: I can listen to that woman talk for hours. I and wish hours I on wish end. we
0: could. Yeah, like I, I wish that she could just sit on the phone with us and just talk for hours. Yeah, many questions that we had, she just answered them.
1: Yeah, we were checking off questions like, "Oh, don't need to ask that one. Don't need yeah. to ask that one." Like she, she, she knows what she up. was she just.
0: She was absolutely wonderful. Um. One of the best interviews we've had. Yeah, man.
1: And she, and when someone's really passionate about their work, like you can tell. And like she said a couple times, like, "Hey, thanks for being a fan of me," and I'm like, "Hey, thanks for being on our show." It's like it's mutual. Yeah, like, this is yeah. like when two people like care about their stuff. Like it's really nice.
2: Yes. Yeah, so one big, just gigantic, thank you to Andrea Romano for being on our show today.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, she did want us to mention something, uh, before we get out of here, though. Um, she we will be at Long Beach Comic Con on February 16th. Uh, she's the keynote speaker for the Ooh, McDuffie Awards. That's awesome. And she'll be signing autographs on Saturday the 17th. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll be there. We'll see you. So we'll be there. We'll, be we'll there. see yeah. you. Say hi and say thank you again. Yeah. Uh, I cannot thank her enough for doing this. I mean, it, it was just an absolute joy
1: and just a pleasure and an and very, honor. Very mm-hmm. easy. Just like, oh, hey, yeah. let's get in Tonga. Like, if want to get back from vacation, let's do it. And then we literally did it like a week later. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. She, she, it's no just, BS. Just an
0: honor. She's legendary. Yep. I mean, I mean we said this. How many other casting directors do
1: we know? Oh, you don't know Ralph Mon-Maggio? Dang, That's Nope. That's said a real <laughs> word. I know. I messed up. So, no, there aren't any other ones. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm sure there are, but. No, I know.
3: Yeah.
0: None yeah.
1: that are prolific like that.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, so, that'll do it for this. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed doing it. Uh, and until next week, where we discuss uh, stuff with uh, Mike Matola. Yes. Um,. Thank you to everyone who contributes. Thank you to Andrea Romano. Big, big thank you to Andrea Romano.
2: Uh, if I could send giant balloons to her house that say thank you, I would.
1: I think if you get the balloons big enough and just write thank you, Andrea, she'll, she, she'll probably, she'll make if, if the balloons are big enough, I bet like. You, she'll you know, look
2: up and she'll be like, just let oh, them, Hey, it looks like my Just name. let them loose in Los Angeles. Yeah.
1: So, hey, I'm a balloon.
2: Hey, <laughs> hey what's the anti doing in the sky? <laughs> <laughs> That's a running joke uh, we have.
0: All right, guys, thank you so much. Stay fake nerds. Stay fake nerds. Wait,
2: no. Andrea's supposed to say that. Andrea
3: says it. No, no. No!
2: (laughs) Stay fake nerds.